With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham SC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show. Today we're going to be looking ahead to this Saturday's game at the Emirates against wannabe champions Arsenal. It's the series of three tough fixtures in a week, plus there's the transfer deadline around the corner. It is an important seven or eight days for Fulham Football Club. We'll have the final word if we have to on Saturday's horrible game against Brentford. In this podcast, I think we're going to try and move a little bit away from the Mitrovic transfer. The lads did it justice on Sunday. We're going to be talking about the future. Who should Fulham sign? Jack has put together a big list and we'll be sharing his opinion. We've got a load of questions in at the end. No, this will catch on. I feel like, yes, maybe we could do with the pickup, but also... It's not the week for it. It's not the week Is it it the week for this will catch on? I'm not 100% sure. Joining me on the Thursday Club in person, it's Jack Collins. Hello. Hello, mate. How you doing? Good, thank you. Nice to have Jack alongside me in the studio. And from Rutzler Towers, Peter Rutzler. Hello, Sam. I'm disappointed there's no this will catch on. I probably shouldn't have turned up now that you've you've revealed (laughs) that as we've started. It's just looking Instead, for, I'm just, just stuck here looking up. at you two like a pair of knockoff Anton Dex and there's some dark curtain <laughs> behind you. <laughs> yeah, Jack and I are kind of like uh, incredibly close to each other because um, we want to be on the, on the screen uh, for Peter today. Yeah, I know. Maybe we should have got this or catch on, but I, I'm sometimes dubious as to whether... Keep it. Once we've signed five players next week, we'll have to write loads of new ones. So yeah, it's all good. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can always uh, come back to it. Well, look... Um, we should probably just get everyone's thoughts on the game on Saturday if we had to. Um, Peter, I'll start with you. I think at the time I was I was gutted. I was desperate, disappointed. I, it was a desperate day. And obviously that coupled with the Mitrovic transfer as well. And I think now I've slept on it. I think that that is a game that if that had ended 2-0 to Fulham, if Fulham got the first goal, could have very easily finished the other way round. It was a tight first half. I think Brentford would have maybe argued they shaded it, but not much more. It was a game of real tight margins. 
a mistake decided it. And I do believe that if Fulham had got the first goal that day, it is not beyond the realms of possibility at all that Fulham would have gone on to win. Everything conspired against us. And that is not a defence because there were some poor moments and poor performances. And we do need to improve in loss of aspects, particularly going forward. However, I think the scoreline and the opposition makes it feel worse than maybe it was. Yes, I think so. I, I, I get what you're saying. It was very tight before uh, the Issa Diop mistake. Um, it felt pretty balanced. You could see that Fulham were seeing more of the ball. They're trying to do what they normally do. Um, they started the game better than they did against Everton. Um, I, uh, I, I still think Brentford did shade it in that first half. And the reason that they shaded it was they just carried more threat than Fulham did. And that's, that's kind of the underlying concern. And that's probably why the Mitrovic news on the same day stung that bit more as well, because that feels like something that's now, well, it's just more pressing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a, it's a big issue. You, you need goals. And I think, you know, Fulham had their moments, but it's, it was never, you never really felt that they put Flecken under pressure. And Flecken, for me, is a keeper that looks a bit nervous. He's still adapting to his new team, um, looked a bit wary with crosses. You could see that Fulham were trying to play on that a little bit. You know, the Pereira's deliveries and crosses were, were dropped on top of him. Um, but no, still not really creating many good chances. I think Diop had some of the best ones, you know, this sort of half chances where the ball's bouncing and he swiped the leg at it mm. from a set play. Um, but I... I, I don't know. I mean, Fulham came out really well in the start of the second half and it was just as their early momentum was fading a little bit, you know, after Deco Reed hit the bar, that the that the penalty happened and, and the red card, which, you know, I know has been discussed at length, which was ridiculously soft, um, questionably a foul. Um, I, I did check actually about VAR and what, what, what sort of the protocol was it? With, the protocol was with that. Um, and it was just because, uh, well, they don't check yellow cards to, to red cards, which is, I think, an interesting element of the, the law. And I think if there's a clear and obvious mistake, regardless, they should be looking at that. But mm. um, once he's given a foul, it was always going to be a yellow card. So I think that was because it seems like it's not really a foul that you think is going to be, um, you, would, you would necessarily say is a yellow card tackle anywhere on the pitch, but because it was dog so-so, which is directly leading to a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, so that's why he was booked. So it's one of those which is like, well, if he's given a foul, then he's going to get booked. And then it's just almost a ludicrous It feels like the card. return of like double jeopardy, jump double jeopardy, where that, which, which they outlawed, which was, you know, when... You, well, yeah, exactly. Couldn't get a red card and a penalty because that was like hitting us twice. And okay, it's via the back door. Um, you can't mitigate for everything, but... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it killed the game. Let's 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 make no bones about that. Yeah, no, it did. It, did, it killed the game at that point. Um, and then, and then you know, the scoreline, the scoreline is what the scoreline is. Could have been higher, I think. But um, I, I think, yeah, my overarching concern was just open play in the final third. Um, and we know how important Mitrovic is, but we've seen that Fulham can cope without him. And I'm just not sure that they're there yet. And I, I also feel like this preseason has just not been great. Like. 
I mean, we talked about it ahead of the Everton game where Deitch hasn't taken his team abroad and, um, well, they went to Switzerland, didn't they? And they just, they just seem sharper, they seem fitter. I don't know if that was the case here necessarily, but I just don't think Fulham have found a rhythm. Whereas last year, last season, you could see that they were finding a rhythm and an understanding between the players on the field. And I don't think Fulham have that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you can take that. And we contrasted the Hoffenheim game this year with the Villarreal game last year, right? That was part of the way that it all worked together. And it did just feel, especially in that first half, I was like, I don't know what we're watching here, but we could be in real trouble. Now, obviously it got better in the second half. And I think we've seen that in both games to, you know, to an extent. I think in the Everton game, Fulham came out second half and were better. That might have been to do with the substitutions as much as anything, but it felt like they'd finally grown into the game. Start the second half, as, as you mentioned, Peter, was a better spell from Fulham. And, but I'm completely with you in that obviously score lines can be difficult and score lines shouldn't reveal how you feel about a game. If this had ended 1-0, I would feel similarly to the way that it ended at 3-0. But it doesn't matter because I don't think that Fulham at any point from Brentford going ahead felt like we were going to win the game. Now, obviously things can change and goals change games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. But generally what I've seen from the first two performances with Fulham just being relatively toothless up front without Mitrovic. And that's not to say there isn't life without him. I think there is. But what we've seen in these couple of games gives me no hope that, you know, when we started the predictions two two weeks ago, sitting in that garden, and it was like everyone on, on Twitter was like, 16th feels really negative. I'm looking at it now going, might have been too optimistic. And that, for me, is the real worry at this point. Because what I'm seeing here, because we didn't perform well, yes, we got three points at Everton. But it, we could be sitting here quite comfortably talking about a 3-0 loss and a 2-0 loss. And if we were, how would we be discussing the start of this season? Now, that's what I mean about outcomes and results changing the way you think about things. Because actually, the two performances we've put in at the start of this season, I don't think have been anywhere near good enough. Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is that, and you mentioned this, like the Everton game could, could probably should have gone completely the other way. But the fact that there is three points on the board which I remember Sammy, you were saying when we were doing the predictions, it's like, you know, that's so, so important. And and it is, especially now considering the next two games. It's almost like Fulham have an opportunity. One is to to strengthen the squad, which I know we'll talk about. But then also they have quite, a, these are two games that no one's expecting anything from. It's, it can almost be like a reset and you get the international break as well. So in a weird way, as much as it feels like this has not been the best start in terms of performances, they've actually put themselves in a like a decent enough position just with that one win for to turn it around relatively relatively easily or, or quickly once the once the window shuts i think anyway yeah and and look i think we've got a couple of questions later about expectation and all of that and i think maybe what Brentford did on on Saturday that the result is is temper some expectations and that look yeah okay you did get a little bit hounded for the 16th prediction but like right now I think like if you offered me 16th I probably would reluctantly take it because we we were in a bit of a a pickle and but we're fortunate you know I remember last year we were all like look one if you get one point per game you will yep. stay in this league. Currently, we're over one point per game. It's yep. probably going to go back under that after Arsenal and City, let's be honest. But then you've got chances to keep that ticking along. Like, yes, okay, we were brilliant last year. We finished 10th. That could still well happen where we have a brilliant season. But also, regressing to the mean is not necessarily 
failure. It's just kind of what generally happens. Um, let's look ahead to Arsenal on Saturday. Jack, any chance? I mean, <laughs> on what we've seen so far, no. But <laughs> equally, football's a funny game. And, and there might be, and I, I do wonder about this, a little bit of a chance for the squad this week to sit down and just be like, right, the drama around all of what's happened this summer is finally over. You know, that feels like the last exit from Fulham that is not being sanctioned, if you will. Yes. And I think that that gives the chance, the group an opportunity to sit down and be like, there's no more Willie Wontney hanging over it. It's this is what we're going forward. We're going to have to try and strengthen in the final weeks of the window. Fine. Start playing for your place. Start to actually get into the swing of this because this is what we're working with. And I think that that should offer us some opportunity to just reset. Obviously, Calvin Bassey is going to have to come in for Tim Ream. We're going to see what he can do from the start for Premier League game. There's a chance for, for Diop to try and redeem himself, I think, after the miscue on Saturday. All of it feels like a kind of, okay, press the reset button. Let's just put that aside. It's one win, one loss. There have been two performances that I would say the squad will look at and go, they weren't up to scratch. Yeah. And it now gives them an opportunity. As we say, there are no free hits, but if you've got Arsenal and City in a week, you're like, we're going to get two of the big guns out of the way and done with in the space of a week before or just as the window closes. And then it gives us an opportunity to refresh into that international break as well. Ideally, in, in many ways, and not quite to the level where you'd want to see this on the pitch, but this can feel like a, another bit of a pre-season, I think, for Marco Silva. Mm -hmm. Because he can go, right, I've got a couple of weeks here with these two games, with the cup game and with the, the international break, just to try and mould what I've got with and, and try and mould it to what I want it to perform like. And so I'm, I'm looking at that and going, okay, go out there, give it a go. If it doesn't go to plan, okay, fine. It's Arsenal. I can accept that. Yeah. Um. So, so I think that there's hope in that regard, but I can't see us picking up points. No. I mean, Peter, Arsenal starts the season. They've played two teams that they would have expected to comfortably beat. And they've only won by one goal score lines. And in both games were given a scare. They went 2-0 up against Forrest, seemed to be cruising, let Forrest back into the game. And had Forrest got an equaliser that day, I think that no Arsenal fan would have said it was undeserved. I think Forrest really piled on the pressure late on. And then the Palace game on Monday, and yes, affected by a Tomiyasu red card in very similar circumstances to Tim Ream, where the second yellow was just... I mean, it was barely a booking, um, certainly not warranting. Then a barely a foul, yeah. mind a booking. Um, the, and, and Palace probably should have got a point out of that one as well. I guess that goes two ways. Gives Fulham a sniff because they have not been convincing despite getting six points, but also could work the other way where the Arsenal players will be looking at six points and going, fine, great to have six points, but we need to go out and and do a performance on the pitch that actually is worthy of potential champions. So I guess either or could could be seen on Saturday. Yeah, I, I don't think Arsenal have hit top gear yet. They're still, you know, getting going, I suppose. And maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe that, that offers an opportunity. Um, but it just depends when they do suddenly kick into gear. I think the, the way they've improve their squad from from last year the way they look overall I think it puts them in a really good position and to, to sort of repeat what they did last season which was which was push City and when you're playing against a team like that with that kind of depth and that kind of quality then it's you, you, if they if you catch them on a good day you, you're in a bit of trouble I, I I think 
Fulham caused them issues last year. The Fulham course <laughs> have caused them issues in the last couple of seasons in the Premier League. Um, Weirdly, and, and more we, in the Emirates than at Craven Cottage. Well, well, yes, yes. Sorry, that's an important stipulation, little caveat. Um, but Fulham were, and I think when Fulham went to the Emirates last season, it was the first time we thought, ah, oh, Fulham are going to be a pain in the ass to play against for everyone. Um, really niggly, really tough, really aggressive. And I think it's important that Fulham can try and get those levels back. Um, I think it helps, obviously, with Jao Polina getting closer uh, to fitness. Um, we saw him come off the bench. He's going to be, we know how important he is, but just collectively just to to help the team find that bite again a little bit. And not that they seem to have lost it. I don't think that's something that they've initially lost, but we saw it more in the, at the start of the second half against Brentford. Like it felt a bit more notable. You know, that's at Craven Cottage, it was always a case that you, Fulham would get in your face. It's going to be tough. Just don't make it easy. Um, don't don't give hand, hand them clear gifted chances in, in the way that the team did. So uh, it's an opportunity to, to show that, I think. To, to rediscover that side of their game because it's that was absolutely essential. And I, I think in particular with, with Palina, it might, it, I think it'll be good to just see if we can move Lukic forward a little bit. Um, mm. I, I think Lukic has been fine. He's doing fine. He's just, for me, he's not a six. I don't think he was signed to be a six either. Um, I know, Jack, you've talked about this a lot. I know we talked about it a lot that, you know, Fulham could do with an, an, a, a, an alternative to Palina that you can get like for like for a Palina, but... Um, someone with that side to their game, uh, just because I it just that midfield screen is so important. Uh, it was really lacking against Everton. It was better against Brentford, I thought. Um, but I think we'll see the best of Lukic in a in a, in a more advanced role. I think I think what's been interesting with Lukic anyway. I don't know what you think about this, but he's he's sort of this. We know he can be a, a conductor, like he likes to dictate the tempo of the game and and with possession. That's not really going to happen at Arsenal, but. Um, he's almost been pushed into that sort of six kind of position to do it. I just don't know if that gets the most out of him, but um, yeah, Palenia may change that. Yeah, I agree. I think that pushing him further forward allows him to carry a little bit more as well, which I think is one of his real strengths. He's one of those players that slightly glides uh, across the turf. Mm. I think when he has the ball and it's, it's nice to see him in full flight. I don't think we've really been able to see that from, from that deeper position because he's expected to sit and screen. And so maybe that ability in transition is something that you can utilize against Arsenal. Forrest used it in that first game, being able to carry, they, they used it wide, but I think there are spaces in the middle of the park there. If you can find those overloads and yeah, if, if Lukic can move further forward, I think that he could be a key weapon in, in that transitional action that Fulham could use. But hang on. I mean, I'm expecting Polina to start. He played half an hour on Saturday, looked fine to me. And you'd think that that would be a, a, a natural reaction, especially against a side like Arsenal, putting your best defensive midfielder. Are we not expecting um, Lukic to drop to the bench and it to be the Polina Reed pivot that we saw pretty much most of last season that was pretty effective for most games it was. last year? I, I wonder if... Fulham go 4-3-3 here without a natural kind of centre point to play in the middle. I wonder if Fulham try to play on the break and play like a Bobby Reed through the middle and play a three in midfield of Polina, Lukic and Reed in order to try and stifle a little bit. Now I know that's not what we've seen so far and I know it's not really what we've ever seen from Marco Silva, but I also appreciate that this week is going to be very different. And I wonder if he just tries to change things up a little bit in order to mix this Fulham team up until he has the component parts 
that he needs in order to pull his pull his system off effectively. But then Pereira drops. Yeah, I think so. But I just we we kind of often hypothesize on this and come up with different. And then nothing happens. And yeah, then right. every week, yeah, Marco no Silva just does the same, and he goes with Pereira. He kind of almost seems to have an automatic thing where Pereira starts whatever game he's available. I can't see him changing unless there is a dramatic reaction to I guess one thing that could be said Peter that if there was a game for Marco Silva to have a extreme reaction probably Saturday would be it yeah I, I don't think it needs an extreme reaction I don't I don't think we're, we're we're that point but um it does it does feel like that you think you're considering the, the kind of team you're playing that may, maybe he has more of an eight than a 10, but you know, we know how important Pereira is particularly from set play. So it makes it really quite, quite difficult. I don't think Willian's hit his stride. I think all the uncertainty maybe in the summer has probably affected him yeah. in terms of, because he, he came when he came in last season, he had that couple of weeks training with the team and I don't think he's quite there yet. Um, so what did you bring him back in on the left? So do you, do you take out Harry Wilson? Harry Wilson's been fine. Um, I think Adama Traore could be really interesting in this game because it's, it's a question for, for us when those wide areas, particularly if they like to invert their left back. And I know that they're getting a little short on that side. So do you use Traore to, to do as Jack was saying, to, to try and move the ball up the pitch? He's a terrific ball carrier. So I think there's lots of different ways when we're going to approach this. Um, it'd be interesting to see just how much they, they reshuffle it. And, Jack, I mean, it sounds kind of foolish to ask the question, what threat have Arsenal got? But what threat have Arsenal got? Well, it's been interesting this start of the season because obviously Gabby Jesus has an injury in, at the moment and it looks like Flo Balogun's out the door after that loan spell in France last season. So it's been Nketiah leading the line. And I think he's done okay. Obviously won the penalty that was the that led to the goal and therefore the winner against Crystal Palace. He scored the opener. Uh, against Nottingham Forest, it did just feel like he he's kind of growing into this role. And actually the rapport that he has with Gabby Jesus and the way that they work as, as a kind of tandem partnership, seen a lot of videos of the two of them working together, you know, trying to coach each other on different things. I've really enjoyed watching. So, I mean, I'm probably not going to enjoy watching it at the weekend, but when, when you kind of put it in that, those kind of contexts, I think that they've done fine considering that their main striker threat is out at the moment. They thought there was kind of a discussion over whether Kai Havertz would play in that nine role. I mean, I think that it's for the best for uh, from an Arsenal perspective that he's not. I don't, I don't think Kai Havertz is a nine, but I have liked what I've seen from him in that midfield so far. Um, Declan Rice is, is holding it all together. They're a little bit short, as Peter mentioned, at both fullbacks now. Um, it, it does feel like they're, they're pushing square pegs into round holes in this regard. Thomas Partey played at right back for a couple of the, the games so far. And, and also now that... Tommy Hasu's out and now that Timber's out I wonder if they bring Kieran Tierney back in now Zinchenko's on the verge of returning but it does feel like he's not quite there yet so whether they go with Zinchenko in there or Tierney is a real question mark because it has felt like Kieran Tierney has been demoted to fourth choice left back and is on his way out so to have to go back to using him at this point would be a bit of a strange dichotomy ahead of the season. Yeah. But look, they have plenty of thrust from midfield in Erdegaard and Havertz. They have Nketiah, who is a natural goal scorer. And then you have the two wide men who are probably Arsenal's most influential players, Gabby Martinelli on one side, Bakayo Saka on the other. They have myriad threats from a variety of different areas and trying to shut them all down at once is a mammoth task. It's something that teams have struggled with in terms of their creating opportunities they haven't quite been on song yet in terms of finishing them which is something we can take heart from but the fact that they have been able to be in those areas without any of their those players Saka 
Martinelli really hitting their stride, I don't think, at this point yet. I think Bode's rough for for Saturday if any of them if any of them do find that rhythm. So yeah, it's gonna be an incredibly difficult task, but it's one that everyone is faced with and we'll have to find a way around various difficult teams this season if we're if we're gonna can, can improve and, and continue to stay in the division. I mean, the only thing, Peter, is that whilst I have serious concerns about our ability to actually score any goals, and, and that is a serious concern, I still look at the, the back five and I'm excited to see Bassi came in. He played so well against Hoffenheim. Yep. And look, Arsenal's biggest threats, as Jack just mentioned, are out wide. Sacro Martinelli, quite clearly. And I've still got full faith in Tete and Robinson. And I still think that's such a strong position for us to be in. If you then have Polinia screening, like... I think that this is going to be a game that Arsenal probably will win, but I have a feeling that it's going to be tight and edgy and it's going to be Fulham holding on and holding on generally quite well, because I just think that there's still a lot of quality and like it's getting forgotten, I think a little bit and, and Tete and Robinson will be a tough task for, for Saka and Martinelli. Yeah. I think if it can be tight and edgy, then that's, that's going to be a good game. It's going to be a, a good performance and a confidence booster. But yeah, no, I do agree. I do agree. I mean, Robinson and Tete were the standout performers at, at the Emirates, I think uh, a year ago, as well as Mitrovic, um, yeah. you know, those one V ones, um, <laughs> Never heard <laughs> those one V ones with, with Sacra Martinelli, but they were both outstanding. Um, and yeah, I, I, I know it, it feels a little, little bleak, but in terms of the actual squad, most of them are still there, apart from yeah, he, he, he who must not be named, or I don't know how in this. Um, but uh, the rest of the, the spine is there. So with Palinia back, we know how important he is and how influential he is and how different the team looks when he's in it. We talked about last year. If he's back, I think it looks a different look for him and, and maybe that'll change the picture a bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens on Saturday, three o'clock kickoff at the Emirates. Uh, I'm heading up. I haven't been since the, uh, I think we lost 4-1 in the New Year's Day. New Abu Year's Kamara Day. Scored. Yeah. And Abu Kamara scored a penalty. <laughs> Iconic stuff. What a day. In the, uh, in the blue shirt. We missed a few chances that day as well. I think Ryan Sessignon missed a couple of one-on-ones. Oh, it could have been so different. All right. We'll take a break there. Afterwards, we'll do some transfer stuff. This is an advertisement for BetterHelp, a portal for finding online therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Would you read more Fulham transfer rumours? Whatever it is, one thing that many of us have in common is wishing that we had more time. And therapy can be a place to help you work through what matters to you so you can have more time to do it. Therapy is great for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the very best version of yourself. It's not just for those who experience major trauma. And if that's something you're looking for, that's where BetterHelp can come in. BetterHelp is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. They'll match you with a UK mental health professional with a wide variety of expertise. There's no referral needed and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, giving you complete control over the whole experience. And Fulhamish listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish. That's betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish to get 10% off your first month. This season, we're pleased to announce that the Thursday Club is sponsored by Green King Sport, where football is more than a game. Green King Sport venues are showing every single televised Fulham fixture over the 23-24 season. And with more than 900 sports pubs across the UK, it doesn't matter whether you're based in Fulham or Falmouth, you can catch every single minute of the action. 
Keep an eye out during the season for events, offers, content and competitions that put you closer to the action. Now, Fulham might not be on the TV for the first few games of the season, but if you're not at Craven Cottage for the first few weeks, make sure you catch the rest of the Premier League action on TNT and Sky Sports at your local Green King Sports Pub. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. It is Sammy here with Jack Collins and Peter Rutzler. Thanks to everyone supporting Fulhamish in the Fulhamish community, uh, supporting all the pods, videos and articles that we do. Link in the description if you'd like to join us and join our brilliant Telegram chats uh, that you can be a part of. Right, let's talk transfers. This is not quite a metro free zone, but look, he's gone. He's been sold whatever it's done we've got a lot of money now to spend and i thought jack you might want to start off by talking about your uh, your brilliant article that you uh, published yesterday it's um it's in frequence that you put pen to paper on the fulhamish website but generally whenever you do it's normally pretty hard hitting and uh, a lot of people uh, were loving uh, this yesterday so it was called how to use the mitrovic money to rebuild the squad. Obviously, go to the Fulhamish website to read the whole thing, but uh, give us a little synopsis of, uh, of what you put together. Well, uh, just sort of to contextualise it a little bit, I think what was interesting and one of the most interesting things we've seen this summer was AC Milan selling Sandro Tonali to Newcastle for a lot of money and then reinvesting that money on five or six players who build the squad out. Now, none of them are Sandro Tonali but they've managed to rebuild a squad that now looks like a far better position than they did last year. So for kind of contrast, last year, Milan had one big signing, which was Sharda Catalara. It didn't work out at all. And the kind of lightning rod for last season's failure at Milan became this big signing. So they decided to switch up tactics, switch things around and actually spread that money out. And I think it's a really sensible thing to do. Now, there are plenty of ways that this has been done badly as well. So that should be you know, put in there. Yeah, Spurs, Spurs post bail. Spurs post bail. The bail, the bail seven, I think, or the bail nine, it might have been. And, and there was a Luis Suarez seven as well, who which Liverpool spent the Suarez money on also incredibly badly. Um, so all of these things can be put in context, but there are instances of it being really important. For example, the Coutinho sale at Liverpool funded Allison and Van Dyke and led Liverpool to a title, basically. And and when you look at the ways that these are done right, I think that what Fulham need to do is not drop £50 million on a striker because I think the one, that's a really dangerous ball game to be in right now, especially with the way that the market is, that you can be overcharged majorly for players, especially, I think, from other Premier League clubs um, or, or from kind of giant clubs who know that the Premier League has loads and loads of money to spend. And also... The fact that if you do this, you should be probably spreading it across a number of different positions. Fulham definitely shouldn't go out and buy three strikers at 15 million each either. So actually what I tried to do was look at where the squad I think needs upgrading and kind of counter that with with five positions or five signings that I would use the 50 million plus a little bit more. I think the five signings come to a total of about 80 million. But I'd imagine that at some point Fulham are going to get another 10-ish million for Tosin Adrabayo and there might be a little bit of money kicking around in the bank, right? So put all together, I think it's a reasonably fine, like reasonably sound financial part of this. Now, whether these people would sell, whether these clubs would sell for the prices we're, we're talking about is, is a different question. But for all of them, these are prices based on other offers that have gone in, the kind of rumour and, and conjecture around what the, the spending might be to get a player out of a club. So I think you start with 
the striker position. And the player that I really like there is Vangelis Pavlidis, who plays for RZ Alkmaar. He's 24 years old. He's a Greek striker. Now, I do, I am aware that the last time Fulham signed a Greek to replace a larger than life character in the dressing room, <laughs> things didn't go that well. Oh, good but Costas. I really do like Pavlidis. I, I think he's a really, really interesting footballer. He's not come up a very natural route. He had a really good youth career. He moved to Borussia Dortmund at youth level, had a really good year, but they didn't make it permanent. And so instead of staying in Germany or instead of, you know, working and, and feeling like he, he deserved better, he went out to Willemsvai in, in the Netherlands, worked his way up into their system, did really, really well at Willemsvai. And then he, he scored, I think, 33 times in 80 odd games for them moved over to RZ Alkmaar and he scored 47 times in 91 appearances across all competitions. What I really like about this is that he's made 91 appearances in two seasons across all competitions. That is a massive, massive hit rate in terms of being available, fit, ready and, and able to take those chances. He played really well in the conference league in big games, scored in both legs against Lazio uh, in the in the knockout round and then scored twice in a game I think it was against Anderlecht to knock them out and, and reach that semi-final where they played West Ham. And just profile-wise, he fits. I think what we were looking for when you look to replace Mitrovic is someone who is good in the air, obviously, is, is someone who takes shots in, in that regard, who can provide for counter-attacks. Not necessarily one of these players who who likes to get in behind, although Pavlidis is faster Dimitrovic and has a little bit more of that, but can link the play as well. And, you know, and, and, and he's able to get in the box and make things happen. And basically, obviously you have to adjust for the fact that the Eredivisie is a weaker league than the Premier League. But Pavlidis profiles like Mitrovic in every area of strength and he profiles better than him in every area that Mitrovic actually was pretty weak in, in terms of progressive runs, in terms of counter-attacking goals, in terms of pressing. Pavlidis strikes all the boxes in those areas as well. So he is a Mitrovic light, I think, in the way that he attacks the ball in the air, in, in the way that he tries to get around the penalty box and score. But he also offers a little bit more in his game in terms of just well-roundedness. And I think at 24, having come up and, and done well wherever he's been and, and come up the hard way and sort of earned his spurs, he feels like the kind of player, I think, ready for a breakout season. The other clubs interesting have been Lons, have been Borussia Mönchengladbach, have been Aston Villa earlier in the window. Feels like the kind of profile of clubs that have the right idea about where they're progressing. And that for me gives faith that I think that it's probably a relatively sensible look. I think you could get him out for around 20 million. And I think that, that using that as a replacement for Mitrovic without spending the entire bank on it takes a little bit of pressure off his shoulders, but also brings you in a striker who has a lot of room for growth. Okay. And then maybe just, um, do you want to run through a couple of maybe the positions that you just thought like would be worth spending the rest of the money on. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm interested to know, do you think that's in this window it's in, in, in the next seven, eight days or whatever it is, or are you thinking also maybe extends into January, et cetera, et cetera? I feel like very rarely do you get good value in January. Um, and, and the last days of this window are actually often where Fulham have been the most active. So I'm interested to see how that develops. I think we need a fullback, preferably a right-hand side fullback in that Calvin Bassey can play left back at times. So I think you want someone trending towards the right, but if you can get someone who can play both sides, I think that would be excellent. Obviously Dest has gone to PSV now. He would be my first choice. Carl Walker-Peters is there. I'm not sure if the Arsenal interest muddies the waters a little bit on that one. But I think that if I was going to choose between two relegated fullbacks, you can play either side. I'd rather have Walker Peters than Castagna. 
Um, I think we need a centre-back still. And I think the Diop's error at the weekend is a real marker that you can go, we need people pushing each other in every position. Now, I think Diop's got credit in the bank. I'm not saying that he gets dropped from this side immediately. But yeah. I think the fact that Bassi and Rima, you know, squashing it out for that left-handed spot, Diop's there like, Cool, just me, I guess. Um, it, it's probably not a great thing for... Let's pass it to Ia Visser. Yeah, exactly. It's probably not a great thing for keeping standards high. I think you have players pushing him. I, I like Zeno de Bast and Delect, who I think you could probably get out for sort of 10, 15 million-ish. Uh, at this point, I think he's going to go on to become one of the best young centre-backs in Europe. He's 19 years old, full Belgium international, given his debut by Vincent Company at Anderlecht. Pretty good resume for this point, a 19-year-old. I want a centre midfielder and I'm going to continue banging the Andre Almeida drum because I think if you buy Andre Almeida right now for around 20, 25 million, you sell him for, I reckon, 50 to 60 million in two years time. I think he's got that kind of ceiling. The player he profiles most like in Europe is Jude Bellingham. He is an, you know, a press resistant, really forward thinking, brilliant dribbling midfielder who also can put a tackle in and make things happen. He's an all-rounder in, in pretty much every sense of the word. And Valencia are absolutely cash-strapped. And I think that when you look at all of that, you, that's the kind of player that you go, that's a profit. It's a profit waiting to happen. And and if, you know, if, I don't understand why nobody's picked him up yet. There were lots of interest. I know Villa were interested earlier in the summer uh, with Monchi going in there, but... I just think that someone is going to pick up an absolute gem here. 20 million is a lot for a gem in the making, if you will. But I think that he has all the qualities to be an absolute superstar, one of the best centre midfielders in the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm hot, hot, hot on Andre Almeida. I think he's brilliant. Um, yeah. And then I'd like a sort of winger slash 10, because I think that we, that lack of creativity really hurt us at the weekend. The player I really liked was Ricardo Orsolini and he's the one I've written about in the article. But last night um, it was confirmed on, on Twitter by Fabrizio Romano that looks like he's staying at Bologna. Um, that fee was around the sort of 12 million euro mark when Fiorentina were involved in the conversation earlier in the summer. And I thought for that kind of money, a player who is pretty much in his prime, 26 years old, was valued around 70 million euros two, three seasons ago by Bologna um, by when Juventus tried to buy him back. And I think that kind of cutting in onto that left foot, making things happen in those areas, he profiles really nicely with his Fulham side. He's obviously not going to be the guy now, but I think a winger number 10 is the last position I'd look to fill with that. Amazing. Well, do check out um, Jack's article. It's on the uh, it's on the Fulhamish um, website right now. Uh, I mean, Peter, what kind of sense are you getting from the club? Um, the deadline is next Friday evening, the 1st of September. It's the night before the uh, the Manchester City game. There's obviously a couple of games to, to be played in between now and then. And the actual paper talk seems kind of paper thin. Like I'm, I mean, there's rumors of it's kind of this Solanke rumor. Hudson Adoy seems to kind of be off the table. Moisey Keen. I don't know. I'm not buying really any of the names being realistic signings at this point. Um, and I feel like one thing with Fulham this summer is that the signings that have happened came apart from Bassi. There was quite a lot of rumours about Bassi. Adama and Raul, for example, came out of absolutely nowhere. I feel like this time next week, we are going to be talking about people that we hadn't even thought of uh, at this stage. So yeah, how, how, what, how does the land lie feel like a, a week out? Yeah, so it's going to be interesting. I I, I think the, the issue Fulham have, and Jack mentioned it at the start there, is everyone knows that they have got some money now 
for a striker more or less like that's the perception so you're going to there's going to be a lot of noise there's going to be a lot of noise that will have degrees of truth to them um i think as marco silva said uh, after the brentford game you know they there are other positions that they need to strengthen uh, he's mentioned about fullbacks before he mentioned that in his pretty much press conference as well I think that's probably one of the more pressing areas, uh, particularly as Jack said at right back, because I don't think there is cover. I mean, Bob, Bobby Dekadori can play there, but if Te- Kenny Tete picked up an injury that took him out for a couple of months, then you don't really want to be relying on Bobby to to have to to play on his versatility for that uh, extended period in the season. So that quite clearly is a is a priority position. Um, I think Jack sort of outlined the, the positions that they need, really, midfield. Um, with a wide player obviously the Hudson-Odoi move is stalled um, and then there's striker and striker is interesting because obviously they brought in Raul Jimenez and you would assume and I don't get the impression that Jimenez was a Mitrovic replacement um, now he might prove us all wrong and, and can do really well but there are still three forwards not including Jay Stansfield who I expect will go out to the championship Um I mean, uh, Carlos Vinicius is on a permanent deal. So is Muniz, uh, and now obviously Jimenez. So there's there's three players there. You've got to try and sort their futures out. So I'm I'm curious as to whether that affects not the not that they won't pursue a striker because they will and are, um, but just how that plays out a little bit. And and also I think we talked about this before. What does Fulham do? Here, what does Marco Silva want to do? Does he want to continue with having someone like Mitrovic as a as a focal point and having a striker that is you know the the team is built around in a way that he hasn't really done before at his previous clubs? So, do they, as Jack was saying, go for that that wide player? The Hudson Odoi stalling is interesting. I don't know, I don't know the, the ins and outs of why it, it, it stalled, but is that because they're fed up of Chelsea? holding out for eight million or whatever the fee is. Um, is it to try and move that along later in the window or is that genuinely that they've decided they're going in a, in a different direction? Um, but that would be a key position if, if that's the thinking in terms of scoring. And then Jack said about a 10 and eight slash 10, he scores goals. Obviously Andres Pereira has been excellent. You've got Tom Kearney as well. Um, but do they want to, a goal scorer, more of a recognized goal scorer in that position? So I think that's interesting. I would say this a six is probably more important than an eight slash ten. Just looking at the squad, um, because if we, as we were talking about with Lukic earlier, if we if we see Lukic as a more advanced midfielder, and I think he was signed to be more advanced, then then you probably would say you need that Pelinia cover because uh, Pelinia is, you know, I mean, he's not going to lose interest, and we've seen how valuable those number six players are, the defensive midfielders are in this window, and you know anything can happen, can't it? So without. Not that I imagine it will, and I don't expect it will, but um, that's the kind of thing maybe in January if someone's desperate, then you want to be in a good position for that. Um, but yeah, those are the, the sort of the the positions and I, I, it's going to be an interesting week. Um, I'm trying to, I don't want to take names because as I said to you before, it's it's actually quite tricky to know the degrees of stuff and Fulham, Fulham have more than one player on their tar- on their target list yeah um i think ones you mentioned have, have degrees of truth to them um i think a player like Solanke is probably what fulham would want 
a link player. I mean, that's what Marcus Silva's always had, a target player who can link play. And he's kind of an all-rounder, very expensive player to to bring in. Um, and Bournemouth have already rebutted interesting from West Ham. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens because everyone knows they have money and it's a key position. And if they do want to get a striker, it's... It's tough, and this is this is, but this is part of it, you know. That we, I think, in the the piece I did after uh, after Saturday, just talking about Mitrovic and you know how difficult it was that he's left and the legacy of that and the emotion of it all, but also just being like, well, have Fulham prepared for it, you know? Um, it's not like a surprise. So, um, I mean, that you know, it's like, well, you have someone lined up. It doesn't work like that. It never works like that, particularly when the market moves so much. Mm. But you, they'll have players in mind and it, it, who they go for and how they do it will be will be interesting I think yeah and, and wonder you talk about the number six one men, name that I didn't mention there Jack that's been mentioned a lot is Eric Dyer. Um, one year left on his Spurs deal. I think Levy, in a similar but obviously nowhere near as a traumatic case to Kane, would want to get the money now for him. But kind of Dyer has made it fairly clear that he wants to see out his contract until next year, but possibly would be open to a loan. Um, and we have two domestic loan spots available. Feels like a potential match if if Postecoglou's not so keen on him, and he would provide cover. Um, He's a controversial player, though, and uh, he's, he doesn't always go down brilliantly well with uh, the teams that he's with. But there's no denying his quality. You don't play at two World Cups for England if you're rubbish. No, they, I mean, he, he definitely was a quality player. Whether that is still the case or not is maybe a slightly different question. Um, but I, I do think that it feels like the kind of thing that Fulham would do. And look, I, I don't think it's potentially a particularly bad move. I think if that's one of the domestic loan spots, I'd still worry about the age profile. Now, obviously if it's a loan, it's slightly different, but I am really worried about this, the age of this squad. And I think that it needs bringing down. And I would like to see us use those loan spots for players with options who might be able to come in and excite and actually, and, and impress. And then we, at the end of the season, we go, yeah, we're taking that option because we feel like they're worth far more than that now. And that's, I think the most sensible way to use the loan market. But in, in a pinch, I think that centre-back is quietly becoming one of the most important positions that we sign now, between now and the end of the window. Now, obviously, we saw that fourth centre-back in Shane Duffy not actually get that much game time last year, and that's fine. But I think that given the fact that Tosin feels like he's leaving, it just we just feel at least one, maybe two short in there, and that's that's the real concern for me right now. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that it would be one beauty of Dyer is uh, the, can ability, play both, yeah. the ability to play both positions. Um, so we shall wait and see. Um, we'll be obviously back on the uh, Thursday Club next week uh, with uh, hopefully a lot more info on exactly who Fulham uh, should or might be signing uh, before the end of the window. But you can uh, you can imagine that uh, we're going to be uh, we'll be busy. I noticed that AEW's got its uh, show live at Wembley this 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 Saturday. I'm hoping once uh, that's out of the way, then Tony can maybe uh, put the Fulham hat on at least for a few days. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, we'll take another break there. Afterwards, we'll get into a load of your questions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast is the Thursday Club with Sammy, Jack, and Peter. Let's get into some of your emails, starting with this one from Peter O'Connor. Uh, sent at 10 past 10 p.m. on Saturday evening. It says, Dear Fulhamish team, ah, lots of letters. Worst all round Fulham Saturday in memory? Question. Serious thought though, chatting with my dad, we couldn't help but reflect on the parallels between Saha and Mitro leaving. Talismanic forward, will they, won't they transfer Saga? Flying high before departure, slump in form without them. Costly construction projects to be funded with the proceeds. And then he says in brackets, I hope not for Mitro and I hope we have a better plan there and it doesn't affect FFP. But most importantly, not fatal to the team and survival short and midterm. Sahar's departure took us a few years to quite get back to storming heights and we came close to going down on the way but we did even have a few better years after we went. Hopefully we will do again Um, and that's from uh, Peter O'Connor and he uh, says PPS you'd think Al Halal could hire a half decent videographer with their cash that video is pants. (sighs) Yeah the video was dreadful. Uh, the video that Al Nasser put out for Otavio signing for them was also dreadful, really weird. It was like two sons, the son and the father in a Porto kit sitting on the sofa with like a fake news broadcast going on. And they were like, oh, Otavio might sign for Al Nasser. And the son turns to his dad and he's like, would he go to Saudi Arabia? And his dad turns back to him and was like, Saudi Arabia is a great country with a great vision. And if Otavio goes, and we will we will follow him there. And it cuts back to the TV. And he's in an Al Nasser kit, Otavio, going, I've signed. I'm one of you guys now. And he cuts back to the dad and the son who are like in Al Nasser kit. <laughs> like, yay. It's honestly one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Um, speaking of uh, transfer videos, please can Fulham um, sign whoever does them for Burnley. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely sensational. Yeah. Genius. Fantastic. The, the one, the Barbie one today, absolutely, um, absolutely killed me. Sander Bergeon yeah. was the best for me. Oh yeah. I mean, they're all good. They're like, they're, they're like they're works of art every single time. So, um, yeah, let's sign him Fulham. Cameron Robinson. We met Cam out in uh, Philadelphia. He says, hello gents. Greeting from Philly. Hope you're all well. Sadly today we learned that Mitro has departed and so has the saga at home. And now if you listen to this pod, you might remember this. <laughs> As you may recall, my wife is an avid supporter of Al Halal. The last week or so has been tense, cold dinners and passive aggressive passes of salt. Me distraught over Mitro, her promising they will treat him well at the moment we are sleeping in separate rooms kidding we're all good it's only been light teasing just wanted to give a quick update i guess in a sense i lucked out since we've supported both clubs from the start fingers crossed we'll pull in a proper striker my money's on balogun and that's cheers from cam my money's not on balogun for it's worth with monaco and chelsea in for him i think we might be on a losing battle with that one yeah i'm um 
I'm not, I'm not convinced, but I remember Cam, uh, uh, I thought he was joking when he said that at the live show that his wife's an Al. So did I, when I read that out there, I was like, wow. Yeah, no, uh, it is definitely, uh, definitely true. Um, let's go on to this one here from Nathan Vince. I've actually done a bit of research on this says, hello, Fulhamish. I'm not sure if this is a revelation, um, since we've been linked to Dyer or just something that everyone is aware. Does Marcus Silva only sign Portuguese slash Spanish speaking players? Muniz, Polina, Vinicius, Willie, and Pereira, the list goes on. Uh, he asked, as a result of this, who are your top three Portuguese-speaking signings for this side, Jack? But I think Polina's probably top for me. Yeah. Um, I think he, he's the always one. I think it goes Polina. Oh, I'm going to say Andreas and then William. Like, I really, really do like Andreas Pereira. Like, I, I really enjoy what he brings to the team. Yeah. I think William's more of a moments player, but I definitely think there's, there's definitely something in in Pereira and his consistency. And whilst he's had a bit of a slump in form at the end of last season, and I think going into this season, I, I think he's a really important player for us. Um, Do you know, my, my, I think the, the regret is the, that we never saw an even Cavalero, you know, um, redemption story. I think it was the yeah. one thing that was sort of, sort of missing. He got an assist in his first game for Lille. Did see that. Yep. Did he? So, yeah. Oh, big yeah. up Ivan. He's back. Um, the horseman. I did some uh, I did some counting on this, Nathan, and I looked at all the permanent transfers that Fulham have made since Silva came in. Um in the first season, two out of four were either Spanish or Portuguese speaking, which was uh, Rodrigo Muniz and Paolo Gazniga. Uh in the season before the Premier League, uh, four out of eight were uh, the Palinia, Vinicius, William and Pereira were either Portuguese or Spanish speaking. And this summer, two out of three, both Spanish speaking, um, Raul Jimenez and Adama Traore. I'm pretty sure Jimenez also speaks Portuguese because he spent quite a long time at Benfica. There mm-hmm. we go. So um, there does seem to be something uh, in it uh, as to whether there is an actual strategy. I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure. I vaguely remember asking Silver about this last season for a piece uh, I think it was around when Lukic was joining and obviously didn't speak English. I was saying, well, you know, you've got sort of a, uh, what's the right word for it, Jack, for Portuguese speakers, a special Lucifone. word? There we go. A Lucifone culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much, no, everyone must must learn to speak English and, and whatever else. But you can you can see that, you know, from the friendship groups that are formed, that which you see on social media, that it um, seems to be a factor anyway. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not massively surprising, but it does seem to be uh, a lot. Um, Brendan Mazar has emailed saying, at the time of writing, there is a lot up in the air about the way forward for Fulham following Mitro's departure. One thing I heard on the Monday pod and and online discussions is the sentiment that player X or player Y wouldn't be good enough if we want to get into Europe. I think the supporters are due a healthy examination of what we can and should expect on an annual basis from Fulham. It's my belief that we aren't a club with the infrastructure to become a team chasing Europe each season. To that um, extent, that risks us ending up like Wolves, spending more than we can afford and having to pay the piper at some point. How did we become a supporter base that went from hoping for survival to writing off incoming transfers as they're not worthy of our ambitions within the course of 12 months. I feel like the aim should be consistently mid-table and taking shots at Europe only when stars align or risk boom-bust cycles. What are your thoughts on the matter? Did last season's success become a double-edged sword? And that's from Brendan in San Diego. Mm, Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, I think it's a really interesting one. I think that there are different ways of doing this. And the fact is, and we touched on it last season, that we can all accept the highs when they become high, but actually Fulham overperformed in terms of what we'd be expecting to be statistically across the course of last season. And I think it's important to remember that. Also, there's this element of 
you can you can jump up and last year felt like a real like game breaker season in the Premier League in that Tottenham struggled, Liverpool struggled for lots of it, Chelsea struggled massively. And the clubs that were there pressed to take advantage were the likes of Brighton who'd been able to build this over some time. Now, Fulham don't have a model like Brighton's. And it's really important to to kind of specify that because if you want to do that and you, it's not the only way forward, but there's a lot of clubs who look at that kind of model and, and obviously Brentford are running a similar vibe and it, it makes it sustainable. And I think you can look at this across Europe. You look at someone like Atalanta and Sassuolo, very similar models in Serie A. And, and actually when you put all that into context, those clubs are able to challenge, look, Sassuolo having a really bad spell at the moment because, but bad on their terms in that they're finishing 12th, not finishing in, in European positions, not challenging for those European spots. I think that if you are going to do things in the way that Fulham are, you have to be more consistent in your aim. If you're trying to climb up the table and make a permanent home there, you either have to have shed loads of money or you have to be the best at what you do and you have to hit your target every single time. Brighton do miss, but they miss with such irregularity that it almost doesn't matter because the hits make up for them in the profit margins, et cetera, et cetera. And what happens there is you're able to build up a level of sustainability that then meets people want to join the club and you get these players coming in going, that looks like the best place for me to be for a while. That's important because it doesn't change the fact that, you know, Brighton are still having to compete with multi, multi billionaires around the rest of the big six the, the league financially is still set up that way. Maybe the big seven now in Newcastle, but whatever you, whichever way you're going to plot it, if you're going to beat them, you have to be smarter than them. And right now it feels like Fulham are playing a game, which is kind of just like, Oh, we'll just do what they do on a lower scale. And, and I don't think that's sustainable unless you have all the money in the world to pour into it. And I don't think we're at that level. Peace. Yeah, yeah no, I'd agree. Um, I think we talked about it in a previous pod. Last season just felt like it was, may even have been a one-off in terms of just how some teams struggled. Uh, I, the, considering the wealth that a lot of these teams have behind them, the, the amount of money that they've spent in the transfer windows, uh, you would expect that that, that it will revert to the mean and that those those clubs will dominate and that leaves hardly any space for a European spot. And I think for a club of Fulham stature, I think, Fulham wouldn't be where they are without a wealthy benefactor. Like they're not even close. Um, if you just every time the accounts come out, it's, you look at it and you go, "There's no strong commercial revenue." They haven't really had a buy sell model. You know, Mitrovic is the club record sale. It's a massive sale for the club, um, but it beats Ryan Sessegnon. And Ryan Session was a couple of years back. Um, so if you don't have those other elements to them then you, you can't compete. You just, you, you can't. And I, I, and the, the reason that Fulham are pretty much in the Premier League is because they have spent so much money and have made such massive losses. Um, you know, we've seen the club trying to change that in terms of the Riverside stand and, and obviously that's delayed and which is going to be more problematic because... And the contractors have gone under, haven't they? Yes, that but that, that doesn't affect Fulham now. But I imagine that the contractor was probably affected by the building of the Fulham stand because Fulham are done with the building bit and they're doing the fit out. But um, yeah, obviously it's delayed for a third time now. So it's 2024 with everything and there's no set date for the, the walkway and the, the leisure centre and the, the hotel. So, you know, th that's, that's going to have an impact um, uh, fundamentally. So, um, yeah, this is, this is the problem. And I guess that's the perspective really. Um, unless you can start buying and selling 
well and, and get used to that. The other thing, I don't think guys a club not used to it, like even supporters. Like the idea that, you know, if, they've, if the right price came in for Palina, for example, you should probably sell and then get someone better. Not better, but someone you can develop for a club yeah. of Fulham scale. That's the reality of it. That's just where you are in the food chain. If an 80 million offer comes in, you have to accept that for Palina. Yeah. Like th- yeah. that's where we're at as a club. Like it, obviously it's going to be hard and it might cost Fulham survival, but what's survival worth? A hundred million. You're already made over that profit margin in the middle. So you're... <laughs> That's the flip, right? You have to be able to you have to be able to say goodbye to players as well if you're going to try and emulate this model. But Fulham seems stuck between two stations and have been for a while, and and that's what worries me. Yeah, I, I think that maybe a few lessons might have been learned from this Mitro saga, where it felt like from the outset we were going to try and defend Mitrovic at at all costs, and there's a reason why the Brighton's of the world will let players go slightly on their terms though. For instance, in January, they weren't prepared to let Caicedo go. They were like, no, it's too quick, too soon. Caicedo is staying. But on this summer, they met his valuation and he went. And I feel like, you know, we've got ourselves into a little bit of a mess with this Mitrovic um, saga. And maybe in the in, in the future, we have to put price tags on players. And when players want to go, price tags are met. They have to go, in come the replacements. And I, and I feel like we need a little bit more of a grown up approach to this because eventually I think Fulham did do that eventually you know mm. we, we reached the price that we wanted to get for Mitrovic yeah. and that's fine but one thing I would say is that one of the smartest moves I've seen in years was Borussia Dortmund the season before Sancho left for Manchester United and they put a hard 31st of July date they were like that's our transfer window on Jadon Sancho because we're going to need the month to replace him and United ignored them and then went in with the bids that Dortmund had said they would accept in mid-August. And look, whatever Sancho did afterwards is irrelevant to this. So before someone yeah. tweets saying, yeah, but Sancho was rubbish, that's not the point. The point is that the Dortmund were like, no, 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 no. We gave you a date. We set you a deadline and you've missed that deadline. You can have him next summer now. And they stuck by that. And United were like, what? We didn't know that. And they were like, no, no, you did know that. These were the terms that we set out to you in black and white before this negotiation was entered into. And Dortmund are excellent at doing this. They're excellent at bringing in and selling players. They have been burned before in nearly going under and they know exactly how they are going to utilise the market. And it's something that I really, really wish Willem were better at. Yeah, I think there's a lot of learnings, but also I think... We have to save the judgment until two weeks. We have to, we have to save the whole judgment on everything that's going mm. on. And, you know, the last couple of summer transfer windows, we've come out of them and been like, good. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I would also, I'd also say that it's worth going around when we look at the, the squad in terms of resale values for players. Mitrovic has gone for double. It's a really good fee. It's a club recommend. It's a good fee for someone. Yeah, like, it is, yeah. I think it, I think it's a really good fee. Yeah. I don't think it would, I don't, I'd be surprised if that would, would have happened without. Saudi Arabian money, but it's 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 good money. You've got Tete could go for a lot more money. Obviously, he's got a year left on his contract, so that's going to be interesting. Robinson, we've seen sign a new contract, another player with a very high resale, bought for two million. Alini, we talked well. about. So, where where Fulham are different from before is that they actually have there's some resaleable assets here that have done well and proven. Um, it's just about being ready for the next phase of that. And we also can't not mention the fact that the manager's got a year left on his contract and hasn't signed a new contract um, and how that's affected things as well. So, um, yes. But I, 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 
It's, 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 it's not, save the question on whether Silver will feel like he's been backed or not until the transfer window is over. Yeah. But it's, de- <laughs> it's definitely one that we will revisit. Yeah. Well, um, that'll do for the podcast today. Um, lots to discuss and um, lots still to be found out in the uh, in the next uh, seven to nine days. This is a fascinating period in the history of uh, of Fulham and uh, a lot is riding on the uh, on the next week or so. But the imminent challenge is Arsenal on Saturday at three o'clock. If you're heading down to the Emirates, see you there. Hope you have a great day. Whatever else you do this weekend, though, have a good time as well. Hope you're able to catch the match. Jack Collins, thank you. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's always a pleasure. Peter, are you heading to the Emirates? I am, yes. I'm at the Emirates oh, this weekend. Lovely. See you there, although you'll be... Uh, you'll be uh, uh, Up in the gods. Yeah. Having not a, really that high at the Emirates. No, it's not. It's, yeah. it's quite, it's quite, it's quite <laughs> it's a decent quite, little spot. It's quite a decent nice thing. buffet at the Emirates. It is. I bet it's a nice media lunch nice at the Emirates, isn't there? Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, have a great weekend. Whatever you're up to. Come on, you whites. You whites. You whites.